Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, And so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own shall issue. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars. And if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, so shall be your descendants. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to be him as righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the, of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other. But he did not cut the bird in two. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs, and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your ancestors in peace. You shall be buried in in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the inquiry of the Amorites is not yet complete. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land. From the, river, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Jirgashites, and the Jebusites. The word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent refre- reflection. Let's pray together. Gracious God, 
in this moment now, in the silence of this reflective moment, we pray that you would help us to hear your voice. We have so many other voices that compete for our attention, some shouting at us from without, telling us we need to buy more, we need to experience more, we need to be more, we need to do more, and we're exhausted. We have that voice that wells up from within, either a voice that uh, looks to the future with fear or looks to the past with regret. But the one place we are not is right here, right now. But this is where you are. And so in this moment of reflection, we pray that you would probably do the hardest thing of all, that you would break through all the static and all the noise with the beauty of your voice that says, I know you. I see you. In all of your complexity and contradiction, in all of the ways you get it and you're a good person, in all the ways you don't get it and you're not a very good person, I see it all and I know you and I love you. Help us to see you love us so much you would withhold nothing from us, not even your only son, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again from the dead on our behalf. Help us to live into that resurrection life that is marked by hope and joy and meaning and beauty and renewal. And now, as we open the scriptures, would you teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be changed for our good and for your glory. Amen. In the year 1910, Theodore Roosevelt gave a speech at the Sorbonne in Paris, and the speech was entitled, The Citizen in the Republic. In the middle of this really long speech was a paragraph that has been quoted by politicians and athletes. It has begun epic stories and movies. It has made uh, Brene Brown's uh, TED Talk in 2012 uh, go viral as it starts with the man in the arena. It's a part of a story of what it's like to live life with all of its trying and struggling and failing and trying again. And he says, it's better to be the man in the arena than just the spectator watching, okay? Here's what he says. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who, at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Wow. You can see why it's quoted in so many different varieties, because it applies to so much of life. In fact, if you've seen the movie Invictus in South Africa, um, the, the uh, story of you know, the, the rugby team, it's actually not the poem Invictus that was handed to the captain of the team. It was this poem that was handed to the captain of the rugby team that inspired them on to greatness. Because there's something about entering into the struggle to hear the call of giving yourself greatly that actually brings life. 
You know, it was reading this chapter, uh, it's the very opening to Brene Brown's book entitled Daring Greatly, that was kind of echoing through my mind as Florence and I were discerning the possibility of moving back to San Diego, where I grew up, to start this church. And we were in San Francisco, we had a good life. We had a good home, great neighbors, wonderful, you know, it was good. And then I read this. As friends were calling me and saying, hey, I don't go to church, I'm not a part of any sort of religious community, but I've been to that your congregation in San Francisco. If that was in San Diego, I'd be a part of it. And we're thinking, well, we have a pretty good life here, should we move? And then this comes. It's better to be the one in the arena actually struggling and trying and giving yourself. We thought we are going to do that. And so here we are. Uh, last week in Genesis chapter 12, we saw God's original calling to Abram. Very simple calling, one word calling, go. <laughs> and as we discussed what's it mean for you to go in your life, to hear that calling and to give yourself, uh, we talked about this in my living room on Thursday, and it was st- stories of individual calling of going, you know, personal transformation. Uh, it was stories of collective calling to go, to go to another group of people or to change the way that we view the way we do our work and our job. For some people, we shared the calling to go was actually the calling to be a part of a church plant right here, because it's far more costly, far more difficult, but also far more rewarding and more impactful. It's the invitation of a lifetime to hear that call to go in whatever form we respond. And I think about that when I sit here on Sunday mornings, and I love sitting right here because uh, when we sing, no one has to hear my voice, (laughs) but I get to hear all your voices. And the thought strikes me every Sunday that I'm hearing the voices of people that would not be singing songs of God's goodness this morning if this church did not exist. You are bringing friends into this congregation and and we are having awakenings of faith and spiritual renewal and becoming aware of God's goodness in our lives in a way that I'm convinced would not happen if we weren't here. Um, We're growing closer together uh, with each other as we're reconnecting with one another. I think about the community group on Uh, Thursday night in my home, and we share stories, and you realize, we don't all have that much in common. We represent almost every level of education, uh, every socioeconomic level. We're ethnically diverse. We're a group of people that probably wouldn't find one another normally in this neighborhood. And yet here we are growing closer to one another and actually expanding our vision of what it means to be a human being in a community. We're being reunited outward Uh, redirected outward in mission uh, as we do the Know Your Neighbor gathering this coming Saturday. And you just come and you watch and you see hundreds of our neighbors, homeless neighbors, neighbors with homes, people that would often walk past each other, talk past each other, avoid one another, sitting down at a table and enjoying great music with hot food and getting to know one another. Because the call to go is far more costly, far more difficult, but also far more rewarding and far more beautiful. Another way to say that is, being in the arena will make us far better, and it will far more challenge us than if we choose to simply sit in the stands and just watch. Because it takes not just energy and effort, it actually forms your character as you mature into your calling, as you develop a new level of meaning, a new sense of identity of who you are, as you follow Jesus in mission. So as we consider this calling, we're going to extend now the calling of God to Abram. Last week, it was go. Let's look at what it looks like when you're on the journey with God. And I want you to see that God's grace is at the center of our calling and our identity. You see, this is the way to vital life and ministry. 
that God's grace is actually at the center of your calling and ministry. Before you do anything, God is saying, I know you and I love you and I'll be with you. If you and I forget that, our only other option is to simply try harder, which is going to drive you to despair and to exhaustion, or to cover up your failures and project success at all costs. But when you do that, you die alone. Okay? But there's another way to realize that God's grace is actually at the core of your identity and calling. So today, we see that God deals with Abram's weakness and sin and doubt. He deals with it with tenderness. He deals with it with challenge. And he deals with it with grace. Tenderness challenge, and grace. Uh, So let's catch up from last week. Genesis 12, God says go, and he says, I will bless you. Through you, all the nations will be blessed. And so Abram courageously goes. And you kind of like, if you're doing a scoreboard, you put like one on the scoreboard for Abram. I mean, that was really, he left his homeland and his father's house and all that he knew, and he trusted God, and he went. But by the end of the same chapter, he finds himself in Egypt with his wife, Sarai. And Pharaoh takes note of Sarai and wants to take her into his bedroom. And Abram, instead of standing up for his wife, for whom he ostensibly made vows to protect in sickness and in health until death do them part, this is not a moment of strength for Abram. He says, oh, Pharaoh, you want her? She's not my wife. She's my sister. You can have her. May I find favor in Pharaoh's house. What a moment of weakness. But what does God do in that moment of weakness? He doesn't abandon him. God doesn't say, you know, I thought it was you, but it's not, and there are a lot of fish in the sea, and I can find someone else. He comes and he meets them right in his moment of failure. And so Abram carries on with his nephew Lot, and in chapter 13, Lot and Abram separate, and then Abram comes and rescues Lot in chapter 14. There's this military victory, and after this, Abram is scared. And this is where our story picks up today in chapter 15. God deals with Abram's doubt and sin with tenderness. See, here's what we find out. Abram is just like you and me, okay? Abram has all these ways that he gets it and all these ways that he doesn't. Um, Ways that his spiritual journey can be plotted on a graph as moving upward and to the right, and then ways it just seems like it's plummeting and going downward, because the spiritual journey is often two steps forward and one step back with a few steps sideways, and God meets him in the midst of all of it. Abram's just like us. He's faithless, and he's doubting, and he's questioning. In verse 2, as God is talking to him, imagine this, God is having a conversation with Abram, And Abram's saying, verse 2, what are you going to give me? How will I know? How can I trust you? You're saying a lot of big things. But how how do I know? How do I know I can trust you? Verse 8, he goes on. Oh, Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He's stumbling. He's bumbling. And in the midst of all that, God is tender with him. God is patient with him. God doesn't say, you know, by you know, shaking angry lightning bolts, how dare you question in the name of the Most High. God says, I actually know your questions, and I care about them. He meets him in the midst of his doubt. Friends, do you realize that God welcomes your doubt? 
all the questions you have. That doubt is not the enemy of faith. Doubt is actually probably a sign that you're paying attention and taking these things seriously. And when you see that he listens to it, that he interacts, interacts with you in your questions, in all the unresolved tension, in all the messiness of your life, then you realize you can actually go to him not only with strength, but with weakness. Not only with the ways you get it, but the ways you don't. Do you make space for other people around you to express their doubts? I met with a guy who is on the 20th floor of one of the beautiful buildings downtown San Diego. He's a lawyer, and someone started coming to him with personal life difficulties. And I said, you're on to something. Because a Christian is someone who's called to become in your office. What if you're known as the most approachable person in the office with failure? The person that when someone else blows it, they don't run and hide from you, and they don't need to pretend. They can come in and, and come in and sit down at your desk and say, hey, I just need to tell you, I just made a big mistake. Can people express their doubt and their failure around you? What would be different if they could? What would that look like in terms of the ways you interact with others on your block? See, he meets him tenderly, and he meets him with challenge. Okay, I want you to see this is a part of the character of God. When you read through the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life, when Jesus meets somebody who has completely blown it, he never sweeps it under the rug or minimizes it or pretends that it doesn't matter. And he always lovingly challenges them into something else. For example, in John chapter 8, we find a story of a woman who's been caught in shame in the midst of adultery. And she's brought before Jesus by all the religious leaders, and they want him to exact the death penalty on her. Which is actually in their law that he could have done. And he said, let the first person who has never sinned throw the first stone. And they all wander away silently. But in the end, Jesus goes to this woman whose life he's just spared, who is trembling and all alone and possibly naked in the town square outside the temple, and he says, go and leave your life of sin. I rescue you, I spare you, I forgive you, and I call you into something else altogether. In John chapter 20, after Jesus is crucified publicly, risen from the dead, and all of his friends are gathered together, and he meets with them, except one wasn't there, Thomas. And they tell Thomas, we saw him. And Thomas said, I will not believe this unless I can see the nail marks from the cross. And so next time they're gathered, Jesus shows up and Thomas is there this time. And he says, Thomas, peace be with you. See the nail marks in my hand. See the gash in my side. He meets him in his questions. And then he challenges him. Stop becoming unbelieving and start becoming believing. Doubt your doubts. Water the seeds of faith. I'm showing you some evidence right now, Thomas. Would you please accept it? Would you be an equal opportunity doubter? If you're going to doubt my resurrection, at least doubt your reasons for doubting it. He calls him into greater engagement. And so here we are with Abram, with all his questions, with all his unresolved tension, and Jesus deals with him tenderly, or God deals with him tenderly, and he deals with them with a challenge, but it's a challenge of grace. And this is the part where if you're, you know, if you're just kind of reading this on the surface, Genesis 15 can lose you at the most important part of the whole story, okay? What does God do in response to Abram's challenges and questions? Verse 9 
uh, seems very weird to us. That's the answer, by the way. Here's, here's God's answer. So how will I know? And God says, bring me a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Okay, thanks God, that cleared everything up. I feel a lot better, okay? Uh, it gets worse. Cut them in half and lay them against each other. Okay? That seems very odd to us, and that should seem odd to us. You know who it did not seem odd to? It did not seem odd to Abram. Because that was actually a part of an ancient ritual that was well-known, well-constructed, and often done whenever a big king would make a covenant or a promise with a littler king. Okay? So they would lay those animals out, and they would make whatever the promise is. You know, I promise to protect you and your little tiny empire, and you all promise to give us, you know, taxes and whatever we need. And we're going to put these animals out here, and little king, you're going to walk between them two. And what you're saying is, if you break your side of the, of the bargain, may your life and your country become like these animals. Okay? They, they act out their covenants. Notice who walks between these animals. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Notice who walks between the pieces. Not Abram, but God. The same flaming fire pot that will lead the people of Israel through the desert. God is saying, Abram, if I don't come through for you, If my promises aren't fulfilled, may I be cut off and die. It's miraculous. And Abram has to be thinking in that moment, oh God, I cannot walk that line. So notice who doesn't walk through there. Abram. Abram was never ordered to walk through the pieces. God says, may I be cut off if I fail. And Abram. May I be cut off if you fail? God says, if I don't do my side of the covenant and take care of you and and protect you and bless you and multiply you, if I don't do that, may I be torn apart. And, Abram, if you and your people become faithless, I will be torn apart on their behalf. And the rest of the story we see, this unbelievably one-sided covenant points us to Jesus. Where years later, darkness will come upon the earth again. Where Christ himself, God in the flesh, will be on the cross crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where Jesus will be beat down and cut off in place of humanity, whom he came to save. See, God told Abram, I would rather die and be cut off than to see you fall away from my covenant. And on the cross, he did. On the cross, God says, I see the pain and brokenness of this world, and my response is not to continue punishment upon you, but I take the punishment upon myself. I take death so that you might have life. I take brokenness so that you might have wholeness. I will be crucified outside the city so that you might be brought in the city. Because his grace comes at a cost. And so to put grace in the center of your life is to see that God's words of blessing are not merely good words, but God is committed to putting all things right. That he would withhold nothing from you and from this world, not even the life and death of his own son. That he has dealt 
a death blow to death itself on the cross. And when you look at the resurrection, when you consider the empty tomb three days later, you see that the final word on this world is not death, but life. Not sorrow, but joy. I'll leave you with this. Um, after Jesus was crucified, in John chapter 21, uh, he, uh, you know, Peter, his best friend, has sold him out. The apostles are all scattered, and Jesus shows up. And uh, they've gone back to their day jobs. The fishermen are back out fishing. They've given up the ministry. It's all done. And Jesus shows up, and the first thing he does, he makes them breakfast. People who have failed him, who have run away from him, in his moment of deep care and concern, have left him. And his response is, he makes them breakfast. Is that your view of the character of God? In your failure, he makes you breakfast. Who gives you a tremendous calling to go and to sacrifice and to serve and to enliven others and says, and I will be with you wherever you go. And when you're strong, we'll celebrate it. And when you're weak, I'll be there. A God whose grace is at the core of the calling and identity. Friends, may this be the calling of this church. That God is showering you with grace even now. And this is good news not only for you and me, not only for this church, but for this neighborhood and for this world. What if we become the people that people say, I can go there anytime. I can be a part of anything that group of people does, and I experience welcome and hospitality and grace and life. What if people meet us on 30th Street here and University Street, and they go, oh, you're those people that meet over there at St. Luke's. There's, whatever's going on there, there's something good because there is grace and love and renewal radiating out of that community. What are you guys doing over there? My friends, it's already happening. May we continue to take the next steps together as we go. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do pray now that even in these ancient words where Abram hears your word and says, go, and I will bless you and I will care for you, and Abram has profound questions of how can I trust this? How do I know this will happen? And you say, I will see to it. Lord, even now we come to you with profound questions. You come to us with a grand invitation to follow you. And so however we hear that invitation this morning, would you give us the grace to respond? For our good, for the good of the city and this world, we pray in your name. Amen.